This message is entitled, Can Man Be Saved by the Light of Nature? and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Now today, we're moving into the area of bibliology, and we're particularly interested in the first phase of bibliology, the doctrine of revelation. In order that you may see where this fits, I would like to portray the process of communication of the truth of God into the actions of men by means of a chart here, which has been called the problem of the golden link. Jesus in John 8.32 said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. God is the truth. The experience God wants man to have is that of release from bondage or freedom in Christ. The acts that we perform will simply be the result of the programming of the mind of God into our mind. So somehow or another, if God's creatures are to act in a way that will bring them the benefits that God wanted them to have, they're going to have to have the truth of God from the mind of God. And I believe that these five links that are portrayed here in the chain of communication are all essential for completing that process of getting the mind of God into the acts of men. You'll notice that the first link, the link of revelation inspiration, is a golden link, thereby portraying the purity of the truth as it came from God. And that is the only link in the chain that is infallible because it is inerrant. One might wonder why, if four indispensable links are fallible and subject to error, why is one infallible? And I think the answer to that is really quite simple. First, because it is the link identified with God directly. And therefore, any flaw, regardless of how small, would directly impinge upon the character of God. If anything coming from God has error in it, then that immediately would charge God with error. So that the first link must be infallible, if it is not to charge God with error. Secondly, the first link needs to be infallible in order to provide an ideal for man who is responsible for the other link to seek to meet it. So God sets the infallible standard in revelation of truth as it comes from him. Now then, it will be up to man 
whether he will maintain the standard and to what degree he will maintain the standard. Now, if God went to considerable pains to begin the process of communication by an infallible link, we must, at any cost, expend ourselves to perfect the other links to the best that human endeavor under the power of the Holy Spirit can attain. And if any one of those links is ignored, then to that extent, the process of communication is broken. Therefore, it is important not only that we have an infallible revelation to start with, but it's also important that man should do all that he could to reconstruct as accurately as possible the original text of the Hebrew and Greek in those original documents and to pass it on, and that's called transmission. Transmission is the copying of the original in order to spread it to others. Then the third link is the link of translation. It would not be sufficient for a man to merely faithfully copy the original in Hebrew and Greek for you would not be able to understand it for the most part if you do not read Hebrew and Greek. And therefore, it was important that we seek the most accurate translation of God's inspired word into our own language, regardless of how attractive or how accustomed we may happen to be to any other translation. This is why the work of translation keeps going on and on. It's hard to get people to change. Sometimes they would rather hold to one translation because they happen to like it. So some people hold to the King James because they happen to like it, and others hold to the Living Bible because they happen to like it. And in neither case is that acceptable. Our goal should be to have the most accurate translation possible of God's inspired word. But even if these first three links were done excellently if you did not have proper interpretation of the translation, communication has still broken down. And that's evidenced by the fact that 428 cults in Southern California all appeal to the Bible as their authority for doing what they are doing. It's an issue of interpretation. Interpretation is man's study of the syntax, the grammar, the morphology, the word order, sentence structure, so forth, of the Word of God. Illumination is the other side of the link of interpretation. Illumination is the work of the Holy Spirit in enlightening the mind of the student to that which he is studying. So the link of interpretation, illumination, is basic to the process of communication. If you do not have the meaning of God's word that has been given perfectly and transmitted and translated, then you do not have God's word. Finally, there is the fifth link of application. 
all of the first four links could be done perfectly, though they are not, but if they were done perfectly and you didn't have the last link of application, the whole process of communication has been short-circuited. And this is the downfall of the one who has a great doctrine of inspiration, believes in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God, believes that it's infallible and inerrant and has a real desire to have the exact translation of that and knows the interpretation right down to the last Nat's eyelash but never applies it to his life. He just as well not had the first four links. For any one link missing is sufficient to break the communication. And if application is not there, then the other four links don't do you any good. They just hang down. They don't connect. All five links, then, are indispensable if we're going to get the truth of God into the actions of men. And if man is going to be set free to live as the Creator intended the creature to live. Revelation, inspiration, transmission, translation, interpretation, illumination, application is that which is involved and more in the whole area of theology known as bibliology. Now we want to begin today in these two hours with revelation, the giving of the truth. Now, what is the responsibility of a person who has only had general revelation and has never had the special revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order that they might be saved? Will the light of nature save a man? That could really be the title of the lecture today. As a background for that, let's look at Revelation defined, first of all, and then Revelation distinguished and then divided. Give you a little threefold outline there that will help you to remember. The doctrine of Revelation is that aspect of theology which deals with God making known to men his divine person and divine truth related thereto that would otherwise be unknown. Very simply stated, the word revelation means to unveil. Or, in a more graphic way, it means to lift the shade, to raise the blind, to release the light. So when we say that God revealed himself, we mean he unveiled himself, he raised the blind, he let the light come through, he uncovered, he pulled back the veil. All of those things would be relevant to the doctrine of revelation. Now, let's distinguish revelation from certain other areas of truth. First of all, revelation distinguished from illumination. Illumination is the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he shows what is already there. Illumination is the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he shows what is already there. In other words, illumination does not involve new truth whereas Revelation does. 
Revelation is the giving of the truth then. Illumination is the enlightenment with regard to the truth. Technically then, one would not say today, God revealed such and such to me. Technically, you may say, God enlightened me with regard to his revelation. But God didn't reveal anything to you because revelation, even the special revelation of the written word, is final in the word of God. In Jude verse 3, we are taught that we are to contend for the faith, that is, the body of truth, once for all delivered, past tense, unto the saints. So God is not revealing truth today. The heavens are silent as far as revelation is concerned. Today the Holy Spirit is illumining people with regard to that which he has already revealed in the past. The Bible is the revealed word of God. So revelation is to be distinguished from illumination. Illumination is going on today. Revelation is not. Illumination does not involve new truth. Revelation does. Secondly, it must be distinguished from inspiration. Whereas revelation is the communication of truth from God to man, inspiration is the transference of truth by divine influence into written language forms which others may understand. Inspiration is the transference of truth by divine influence into written language forms which others may understand. By way of shorter contrast then, again, revelation is the giving of the truth and inspiration is the recording of the truth for use by others in written language forms. So much for the distinguishing of revelation from illumination and inspiration. Illumination is the only one of those that is going on today. There is no inspiration today. Inspiration relates to the books of the Word of God. There is no revelation today. Revelation relates to the books of the Word of God. Revelation and inspiration are two sides of the same link in the chain. Interpretation and illumination are two sides of the same link in the chain. Interpretation, illumination are going on today. Revelation, inspiration are completed in the past with the written word of God. Now a third area of introductory remark. Revelation divided. Revelation may be divided into two major areas. The first and larger area of revelation is general revelation, sometimes called natural revelation, general revelation or natural revelation. Now let me give you a threefold statement on that. As to its nature, general revelation is based on creation, comma is addressed to men as intelligent creatures, comma, and is therefore accessible to all men. That's why it's called general. 
Now let's just briefly look at the pieces of that. It is based on creation, that is, the raw materials of general revelation are the material universe, the providence of God in the seasons, the days, in the physical constitution of man. In all of these areas, God is seen in his greatness and glory. General revelation, then, is based on creation and is addressed to men as intelligent creatures, not necessarily as redeemed or regenerate creatures, but as intelligent creatures, and is therefore accessible to all men. Now, the content, we said something about the nature of general revelation, as to its content, it has its source in several areas. I briefly mentioned them. Let me say it again. It has its source in the providential government of the universe, that is, orderliness, Colossians 1.17. You also see it in the goodness of God, Acts 14.17. God gives the rain and the sunshine to the just and the unjust, the seasons, the harvest, the sowing, all the rest, the goodness of God. You see it in his godhood, Romans 1, 19 and 20. The material universe testifies of his godhood. So general revelation portrays the godhood of God. And general revelation portrays the glory of God, Psalm 19, 1. God's glory, God's power, the Godhood, the goodness of God, the orderliness of God, all of these things are seen in general revelation, are therefore accessible to all creation, addressed to intelligent creatures. Now, what is the purpose of general revelation? We'll elaborate this more later on, but just to state it. The purpose of this general revelation is to provide man with sufficient light about God to make him responsible. With this light, therefore, man is left guilty before God and without excuse. A passage to reveal that is Romans 1.20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse. Now, there are certain limitations, then, in that general revelation. The knowledge that you gain from it is clearly not unto salvation, for it doesn't reveal Christ. It does not convey to man, therefore, an adequate and reliable enough picture of God and spiritual things to save a man. The light of nature, then, does not condemn a man. He's already condemned because of his sin. And it does not save a man. Rather, it brings sufficient light to the man so that he is without excuse if he does not respond to the light. Now, what I want to do now is take what we have said about general revelation and expand it 
But the first thing I want to do is to read to you a contemporary example of what happens when a man begins to formulate a theology on human reason or a portion of the Word of God apart from the rest of the Word of God. There are those today that take the viewpoint that there apparently must be enough saving value in general revelation so that a man can come to God without ever hearing the message of Jesus Christ. And they defend that on the basis of their view of the justice of God. For they say all kinds of people have died without ever hearing of Jesus Christ. Do you mean to tell me those people are eternally lost when they never had a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? That would be unjust, they say. And therefore, they develop a doctrine that is known of ultimately as universalism. That is, that all people shall ultimately, by one means or another, be saved. And that conclusion is reached, for example, in Bartian theology, where eventually he even has the devil getting saved. And that's not a new thought, because Origen, way back in the second century, proposed the same thing, only they called Origen a heretic for it, and today it merely is the good thinking of good contemporary theology. I want to read to you three pages, and I want to read rapidly just to give you a picture of a very clever portrait a man in San Diego developed of his doctrine of universalism. He was a missionary at one time who, through frustration on the field with regard to the justice of God and the salvation of the lost, came up with this conclusion. The setting is in heaven. The time is the end of the world. The second coming of Christ has come and gone, shaking the world and gathering the elect from the four winds and bringing from the dead all those who were asleep in Jesus. Their number was myriads of myriads, like the sands on a thousand golden seashores and like the stars of ten thousand shining galaxies. They were a host which no man could number. Redeemed by the blood and made alive through the death of another, they were there from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every tongue. The great day had come, the day of which the church on earth had sung down through the centuries, the day of the great roll call of the saints. Their song on earth had been, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And what they had failed to realize was that so many would be there. And it came to pass as the vast multitude waited that a great hush fell over it. One of the archangels of the Lord had appeared before the throne of God and of the Lamb, bearing the roll of the saints. And it was seen that the roll was, in reality, not one roll, but a bundle of many rolls. For there was a roll for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The name of the roll was called the Lamb's Book of Life. Then from the ranks of the waiting multitude, one was summoned to be the reader of the roll. On earth he had been reckoned among the least of the saints, but it had come to pass, as the Lord had said, that the last shall be first. And to him it was given to take the roll and to read the names of those who were written therein, who had washed their robes and had made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Fittingly, the first role was the role of that nation to whom had belonged the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the prophets. That country within whose borders had taken place the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord of glory. From there, the roll call moved on to the surrounding nations and peoples to whom the gospel had first been preached by the church after the day of Pentecost. And from there, across rivers and oceans, nation by nation, on out to the ends of the earth. At last, the roll was finished. 
Great rejoicing filled heaven as those thousands of thousands praised God with one voice saying, To him that sits upon the throne of the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion and power forever and ever. Then as the sound of rejoicing and praise began to subside, the reader turned to take his place again in the ranks of the saints. As he did so, both he and those who had joined him in the song of praise became aware of another song, not of rejoicing but of dismay and distress, a slowly rising murmur. It came from one sector of that heavenly multitude, a vast sector, and from those in that sector nearest him, the reader at length understood that their distress was occasioned by the fact that their names had not been read. How can it be, he asked himself, that these are here if their names are not on the roll? And as he pondered the question, some of those in the front ranks called to him, pointing behind him toward the throne of God and the Lamb. And as he turned, he saw that a second archangel had come before the throne with a second bundle of rolls, which was as large as, if not larger than the first. And the archangel beckoned to him, and he retraced his steps. What, sir, are these, he asked as he reached the archangel's side. These are the rest of the names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Puzzled, the reader took one of the rolls, and then another, and another, and another, until another, reading to himself the names of the nations and tribes that were inscribed on the outside. Greatly astonished, he turned to the archangel again and said, But, sir, how can these people be here? I know these nations from which these people come. We called them the unreached heathen when we were on earth. It was the archangel's turn now to be astonished. Why should they not be here? Why? Because they have never heard. The gospel of Christ, the story of his death and resurrection, was never taken to them. They did not even have the scriptures in their language. And if they heard not the gospel, how could they be in heaven? The archangel's astonishment deepened. Where did you hear that those who had not heard the gospel could not enter heaven? Why, we were taught that from the Bible. All our leaders taught that. The scriptures they used were most clear. Pray what might those scriptures have been, queried the archangel. One of them was Acts 4.12, a very clear word. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. Nothing could be clearer. But that word, said the archangel, could apply only to a man who had had a chance to hear the name of Jesus. Only he would have a choice between the name of Jesus and other names of this world's religions. To such a man there is none other name. But we are not speaking of those who heard his name. We speak of the unreached heathen. How could they choose a name they had never heard? Would you damn them for not believing on a name that had never been preached to them? Think you that such dealing with the ungospeled heathen is consonant with God's justice? But, sir, protested the reader, did not Jesus himself say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. True, they were his words, but you misinterpret them. He did not say that no one can come to the Father except he know about me. He simply said that he was the only basis or ground on which man can come to the Father. They are accepted only because of him. It seems to be the same thing to me, puzzled the reader. I do not understand the distinction you make. Your problem here stems from another more basic problem, said the archangel. You have been led to believe that there is only one witness that leads to justification, namely the witness about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we understood that that was the gospel. It is part of the gospel, but only a part. But even the gospel itself is only one part of the total witness that God has given to men since the beginning of the world. Do not forget that men were being justified by faith long before the name of Jesus Christ was ever known on earth. God's revelation to man spans many different levels of light, the lowest level of light being the revelation of God in nature. 
And since that level reaches all men, even the unreached heathen, all men are without excuse. Ah, yes, said the reader, happy to hear the archangel apparently agree with something he had often heard. I recall Paul's word in Romans 1 about the heathen being without excuse. True, they are without excuse, rejoined the archangel, but not because they rejected Christ. For how could they reject him if they did not hear of him? Their condemnation springs from their rejection of the light. God chose to give them the light of nature. Notice, he is saying condemnation comes for rejection of light. But surely that revelation alone is not enough to justify the heathen, is it? The reader countered. Let me ask you a question, said the angel. Is that revelation enough to damn them? Well, it must be, for that is what you have just quoted from Romans 1, 18 to 21. Well, then, if that revelation is sufficient to damn a man because he rejects it, must it not conversely be sufficient to justify him if he receives and responds to it? Ah, you trouble me, sir. This is not what I was taught. It just does not seem possible that the witness of God in nature could be enough to justify a man. But is not God consistent in his dealings? Oh, yes, said the reader hastily. Oh, yes. Well, you will agree, I am sure, that the witness about Christ is sufficient to save or to damn a man depending on how he receives it. Oh, of course, of course. Then does not consistency require that any other level of light which the sovereign God chooses to give man must be sufficient to save them if they respond to it, as well as to damn them if they reject it? And so on and so forth goes the writer of the article, basically setting forth the proposition that if God is just, then those who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ must not be expected to believe on that gospel and must not be damned if they have not heard it, but should be able to be saved by responding to the light which they have. Now, on that basis, I want to submit to you God's way of revelation as it relates to the salvation of a man, and this should be as pertinent as anything you can get when it comes to answering the question of the estate of the law, and more particularly, the heathen. In other words, we're trying now to relate to the question, how can God's justice be vindicated when millions die who never heard the gospel? In fact, the vast majority of people. Five points. Number one, natural or general revelation is given to all men. Now, I would encourage you to go back and read such passages as Psalm 19, 1-6, Romans 1 and 2, Acts 14, 17, Romans 10, etc. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. God gives there the universal prerequisite for salvation. And then in the next verses he goes on to give the universal provision for salvation, that there is no distinction. Jesus Christ is made available for all. And then he goes on in the next verses to ask the question, how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And the writer responds by saying, but I say unto you, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth 
and their words unto the ends of the world. And he is quoting there from Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork, day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. He is saying there is nothing wrong with general revelation. It is eloquent. It speaks. It speaks of the glory, the greatness, the goodness, the orderliness of God. It speaks eloquently about that which it speaks about. But natural revelation does not speak of the saving grace of God. And therefore, it is not possible for a man through natural revelation to respond to Jesus Christ. Natural revelation neither gives nor suggests God's plan of salvation. Rather, its purpose is to alert men to the greatness and the glory of God. Secondly, special revelation, that is, in its written form, is given for all men. Now, please note, I did not say special revelation is given to all men, for all men have not had special revelation. But special revelation is given for all men without prejudice. Thirdly, the gospel is given to all that respond to the light of natural revelation. The gospel is given to all men that respond to the light that is given to them through natural revelation. Now under that, let me elaborate that point a little bit. First, Revelation neither saves nor condemns. And if you'll look carefully, for example, at the passage which the writer quoted that I read earlier from Romans chapter 2, Paul says, For when the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Never does it say there that God saves a person through the light that is in man and his conscience. Rather, it makes a man responsible for the light which he has. It is not always effective in producing salvation. Myriads of those who have received the final revelation of Jesus Christ have never responded so that revelation does not automatically save, nor does revelation condemn. Revelation brings light. Secondly, therefore, under the gospel, point three, the effective agent in salvation is not revelation, it is the Holy Spirit. And thus, 
believing on Christ starts before one hears the gospel in the preparatory work of the Holy Spirit. That is, it originates in the disposition of the heart to the light of the revelation they have in the creation around them. So that revelation, both general and special, is a signpost to where salvation may occur. The signpost supplies information, not transportation, by receiving the information of the signpost, you can be led to a place where salvation will occur with the message of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is given to all that respond to the preliminary revelation of creation, natural revelation. And in this regard, God deals individually with persons on the basis of the light given to them. Now, note the sovereignty of God, fourthly, in the saving of the lost. And under this, first of all, God ordains to eternal life. Here you would need to relate what you learned concerning the decree of God. Acts 13, 48, As many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. John 6, All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. God ordains to eternal life. The sovereign God. Secondly, under the sovereign God, the Spirit initiates and perfects individual salvation. The Spirit is the agent of natural revelation. And thirdly, the Spirit unfailingly provides a gospel witness to the responsive heart. Now that gospel witness does not guarantee salvation. But to the one who has responded to the light of nature, there will most certainly be the light of the gospel brought to that person whereby they may be saved. Now I want to just lay on you three vivid illustrations of that, and then we conclude. In Acts 8, Acts 9 and Acts 10. And I believe it is not without design that God picked a representative here of each of the three branches of humanity and showed how the sovereign God will always get the message of the grace of God through Jesus Christ to a heart that has responded to the light that they have. Listen to them. Acts 8. You have a descendant of Ham, right? The Ethiopian eunuch who is going through the desert in a chariot and God does the phenomenal thing of bringing an evangelist, Philip, who is having a phenomenally successful meeting down into the desert where nobody is except a eunuch who just happens to be going through in his chariot and just happens to be reading Isaiah. 
And Philip says to him, if he understands what he is reading, and he says, I cannot understand unless someone shows me, and he showed him what? Jesus. And he responded, and he was saved, and he did the next logical thing in the Great Commission, what does hinder me to be baptized? And so they were baptized, and they completed the whole package right there in the middle of the desert. Someone said, what about the lost man way out there in darkest Africa someplace? What about him? What about the Ethiopian eunuch way down there in the desert? Secondly, Acts 9. Here's Saul of Tarsus, a descendant of Shem. A different case altogether. A man who was so religious it was coming out his ear. He was a person who was confounding Christians. And then all of a sudden, God smacked him on the road to Damascus, and he hit him with what? Who Jesus is. And he turned right around, and he confounded the very Jews who were his teammates before about what? That this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in Acts 10, you have Cornelius, a descendant of the other division of humanity, Japheth. A Gentile. What about Cornelius? Oh, he was a religious man, not like Paul. This man was religious in his practices. He was devout. He prayed. He fasted. But he didn't know Jesus Christ. And he wasn't saved. He was lost. And what did God do? God took a bigoted, prejudiced Peter who hated Gentiles. And so God first shows him that vision of the clean and the unclean, and that unnerved him. And then he took him out on the street and has him marching down the street with Gentile soldiers. And then, lo and behold, he chooses Peter's mouth to be the vehicle whereby Gentiles, Cornelius, should come to know Jesus Christ. And at that moment, Cornelius became a Christian. God, in his sovereign grace, will always respond to the response of a heart to the light that he has. So there is no man in any darkest part of the world today who has a heart to respond to the light that he has for whom God will not bring a witness with the gospel of Jesus Christ in order that he might be saved. The light of natural revelation will not save him. But the light of natural revelation responded to by the recipient is sufficient to bring the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which, if responded to, will most certainly save him. And you are some of the people that God will use to go to the darkest places of this earth to take a message to prepared people. And sometimes you will come upon a tribe of people who are just ready when you give the message to respond and receive it. Why? Because they have responded to the light that they have, and now the message which you are bringing to them just dovetails right into it, and they receive it and come to know Christ as Savior. There is no injustice with God. God will turn heaven and earth and hell upside down if he has to, to get the message of the grace of God to any man who has a heart to respond to the light of natural revelation that is all around him.